Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, on our last podcast, uh, Deborah and I discussed Marlowe's attempt to have Jim grab the rupees and run. Of course, I think uh, uh, if you were listening to last week's program, you probably remember Jim's response was, I may have jumped, but I don't run away. So uh, that was a good revelation for all of us. Now, we also showed you that the French sailor who helped rescue the Patna harshly judged Jim as a coward and a man without honor. And yet I believe it is clear that Conrad wants us to believe that Jim was not a coward and a man of honor by not running away. Now, today what I want to do is I want to finish discussing the end of the inquiry with Jim's day of judgment and the impact it had on him. Now, uh, my wife is not here today because uh, she had another commitment, but there is someone with me in the studio today, and it's my faithful producer, Gabe. He has to be here. I cannot work this equipment on my own. And so, uh, uh, as I promised you, before this is all over, he's going to be on a panel uh, with us so that uh, we give him a chance to, to talk. All right. Also, just by way of reminder, I want you to realize that the the next couple chapters we're going to go through are a little bumpy, and we have to uh, remember that Joseph Conrad, he does continue the story of the Patton and Jim, but he uses encounters uh, with people he meets a long time after his attendance at Jim's inquiry. And so he keeps introducing these characters and uh, for today's program, we're going to skip over a couple of them. There's, a, there's like almost a whole chapter on these two characters. We'll talk a little bit about it. But uh, it's great reading. I'm not saying you shouldn't read it, but I'm just saying is uh, we have a lot of things to discuss on this book. And then we also have a new series coming up. I'll be announcing that in a couple of weeks. And uh, um, uh, we have to keep kind of moving forward a little bit faster. But uh, but anyway, let's just uh, turn this. Let's uh, maybe sh- I should say it this way. We should start on page one eighteen today. And if you remember last time uh, we were reading this page, and there's a, a phrase down at the the bottom, towards the bottom of the page. And uh, my wife said, "Oh, I don't know what that means." And of course, uh, I said, "I don't know what that means." And uh, you can see how. Sometimes when we read, we skip over things we don't understand. And so, so I thought that I'd just start out today and kind of fix this. Uh, this is page 118. There's a, uh, it's really towards the bottom. It says, the real significance of crime is in its being a breach of faith with the community of mankind. And from that point of view, he was no mean traitor. So, so that's what uh, Marlowe says is uh, Jim's big crime was, is that, that he, uh, he had a, he caused a breach of faith with the community of mankind. Now, uh, he's saying that, but he doesn't necessarily mean that. And uh, essentially what he's saying, this is what people think. This is not what he thinks necessarily. But, but then he goes on to say, but his execution 
was a hole and corner affair. Now that's what, what I didn't understand. Uh, but I just realized this morning, I bet there is a way to understand that, and it's called the Internet. So, so I actually type that phrase in and say, what does this mean? And uh, I think it fits right in with the, with the subject now. It, it, the definition of a whole and corner affair is it's, it's, a, it's talking about uh, something being or carried out in a place away from public view or clandestine. And so, so the, th- the thing is, is uh, you know, it's kind of like this is a fake trial. And it's, it's, a, it's got a lot of pumped up charges. And uh, I remember uh, his crime is viewed as a breach of faith. And it's, in other words, it's what the community believes he should have done. It's like the community should have believed he would, he was, uh, you know, should have been more courageous and gone down with the ship. But the, but the ship didn't go down. You know, and this is what, what Marlowe is getting at. Now, <clears throat> he also, he's, he's indicating there when he says his execution was a hole-in-the-corner affair, he goes on to say there was no high scaffolding, no scarlet cloth. Did they have a scarlet cloth on Tower Hill? And, and essentially what he's saying is that he feels that the court proceedings were just coldly vengeful and infinitely worse than a beheading. In other words, these people wanted to behead Jim and yet there was two engineers and the skipper not even willing to show up at court uh, for who were probably more guilty than Jim. And if you remember last time, you know, I said that, that to me that the problem with Jim is he was just petrified of how to get 800 people into seven uh, lifeboats. That's what was paralyzing him. And then, uh, you know, he, he uh, in some ways, I don't think it's necessarily fair that he said when he kept hearing the, the, uh, the skipper and the two engineers yelling at George, who, by the way, was dead, uh, but yelling at George to jump, to jump, to jump, and just as a, you know, a matter of hearing it so much, then Jim jumped. So uh, he didn't necessarily want to jump, but he just, you know, uh, you know, followed the followed that uh, you know what was being said because I think he was so uh, so caught up in his own imagination. So so you have to get that point, readers, is that the Marlowe does not not agree that this is a you know a good trial at all. It is it's not a fair trial, and it just seems like uh, you know we we talk so much now on the Trumpet Daily. Mr. Stephen Flurry does we put it in our publication. You know the. Uh, the Philadelphia Trumpet, uh, you know, we have articles even in the our Royal Vision magazine to show that there is no justice anymore in this land. We're, we're experiencing this. And so, so here Conrad is writing about this from years ago. And yet, you know, this, this is the way it is with man. We're not fair. We're not just. And, uh, you know, sometimes people... Uh, you know, they, they want what they want, and they don't necessarily want justice. And this is what was going on with Jim. And so, so uh, um, you know, that, that is, uh, I think it was something to, to just help you, um, you know, understand. All right. Now I want to skip over to page 120. We're going to uh, maybe just, uh, uh, you know, move ahead with this a little bit. And uh, um, one of the things... Um, I guess that Conrad does bring out here. This is page 120, and it's, it's the second full paragraph down. And he's getting ready now to, to uh, get us to the very last 
day or uh, maybe even the last hour of this inquiry, and he's, t- he's just kind of giving us some, some legal um, facts here. And I know that, uh, of course, uh, uh, I worked on our legal court case to uh, obtain the copyrights for Mr. The Ages, and I was able to help in the background there. And uh, to me, legal, legal cases are just fascinating, and so this is kind of fascinating as well. But in the very middle of the page, Marlowe or Conrad writes, there were several questions before the court. And so, so in previous page, he's telling us these proceedings were really coldly vengeful. But now he's telling us there were questions before the court. And I think we could interpret this as this is the way the judges were trying to make the court look like it was really you know, a, a good court or it was actually a just court. And uh, it really, it really isn't. But here's the first question. The first uh, question on, on the docket, I guess you could say, is whether the ship was in every respect fit and seaworthy for the voyage. And the answer was the court found that it was not. All right. So just start to think about that. If the if the voyage, if if the ship wasn't even adequate for the voyage, why are they coming down on Jim so much? I mean, that's to me, that's a question I would think even a, a lawyer would ask. The next point was, I remember, he, and this is Marlowe, he's talking to his friends, by the way, you know, on the veranda. He said, the next point I remember was whether up to the time of the accident the ship had been navigated with proper seamanlike care. And the answer was, they said yes to that. Now, that's to me is kind of shocking <laughs> when... When uh, we already know the skipper, I mean, was he acting seamanlike? Not at all. What about the two engineers? Were they acting seamanlike? No, they were trying to get off that ship, you know, hours before they they uh, they did. They, they they were working to it, and so so uh, they didn't have seamanlike care. Who had the seamanlike care? It was Jim. And it was probably partly George, <laughs> but George died, and so, so. But Jim, what was Jim's big concern? Eight hundred people, seven lifeboats. Eight hundred people, seven lifeboats. So, so you can see that that uh, here this inquiry, you know, they have to, they want to pin it on somebody, and the only one they have there is Jim. So they're going to do their best job they can. So they said yes, yeah, that, you know, they were seeming like, like care. All right, he says, um, he's, he, he goes on to say, uh, then they declared there was no evidence to show the exact cause of the accident. And so, so here, the, 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 uh, to me, what, what uh, Marlowe is beginning to insinuate is that they still want to hang on Jim, that there was no accident. You know that you know there was no need to jump off ship, but see they don't have the skipper, the two engineers. They only have you know poor Jim to hang for it all. So so anyway, but I think it's interesting then that the Conrad. You remember he was a seaman himself, and uh, you know he did love uh, he he loved that life, and uh, he just adds a little comment in there. He says it was probably a fl- a floating derelict, probably. And so, so in other words, what caused the accident, or what you know, what, or what the patent had rammed into, was probably a floating derelict. And he goes on for a whole paragraph to explain what that means. It says, "I myself 
he says, I myself remember that a Norwegian bark found out with a cargo of pitch pine had been given up as missing about that time, and it was just the sort of craft that would uh, capsize in a squall and float bottom up for months, a kind of maritime ghoul on the prowl to kill ships in the dark. Such wandering corpses are common enough in the North Atlantic. And so, so he was saying that's probably what happened to the patent. It ran into something that was uh, had either capsized or you know whatever. He said, but, but uh, they, they weren't going to buy into that. He says, but there, in those areas, the incident was rare enough to resemble a special arrangement of a malevolent providence, which unless it had for its object the killing of a donkey man and the bringing of worse than death upon Jim, appeared an utterly aimless aimless piece of devilry. So so that's uh, Marlowe's final conclusion is the whole court case, the whole inquiry, was just an aimless piece of devilry. He said, This view occurring to me took off my attention. For a time I was aware of the magistrate's voice as a sound merely, but in a moment it shaped itself into distinct words. And, and this is what the magistrate is saying you know, to everybody in the room. It was in utter disregard of their plain duty, it said. So this is the magistrate said that. The next sentence escaped me somehow, and then abandoning in the moment of danger the lives and property confided to their charge, went on the voice evenly and stopped. A pair of eyes under the white forehead shot darkly a glance above the edge of the paper. I looked for Jim hurriedly as though I had expected him to disappear. And so, so in other words, they're now looking at Jim. It says he was very still, but, but he was there. He sat pink and fair and extremely attentive. Therefore, began the voice emphatically, he stared with parted lips, hanging upon the words of the man behind the desk. There came out into the stillness, wafted on the wind, made by the punkas, and I, watching for their effect upon them, caught only the fragments of official language. The court, dot, 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 gust of so-and-so master, dot, 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 native of Germany, dot, 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 James so-and-so, dot, dot, mate, dot, dot, certificates, Cancelled, <laughs> and so, so there's there's the uh, the end of the inquiry. Is Jim's life is now trash. His licenses are cancelled. And, no, and notice he says James so and so, and also uh, all you readers out there. I hope you know that uh, I realize that Marlowe never gives us Jim's last name. It's not it's not in the book, and so he wants him to be known as Lord Jim. And so, so I think that also shows uh, what Marlowe really thinks of the man. So he goes on to say, As silence fell, the magistrate had dropped the paper, leaning sideways on the arm of his chair, began to talk with Briarly easily. So, so to me, now when I read that, why would the magistrate just all of a sudden start chatting with Briarly? You know, and so, so you have to have the feeling Behind the scenes, Briarly probably had some input into Jim losing his licenses. So, uh, so that's that's my take on it. If you have a different take on it, why don't you write me and tell me? I'd really, I'd really like to know. Uh, he goes on to say, Marlowe says people started to move out. Others were pushing in. I also made for the door. Outside, outside, I stood still. And when Jim passed me on his way to the gate, I caught at his arm and detained him. 
The look he gave discomposed me as though I had been responsible for his state. He looked at me as if I had been the embodied evil of life. It's all over, I stammered. Yes, he said thickly, and now let no man. He jerked his arm out of my grasp. I watched him back as he went away. It was a long street. He remained in the sight for a time. He walked rather slow, straddled his legs little, as if I had found it difficult to keep, as, excuse me, as if he found it difficult to keep a straight line. Just before I lost him, I fancied he staggered a bit. And so, so the thing is, uh, Jim is obviously really, really affected by, by what's happened. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so then what we have here is Marlowe now goes off on a complete tangent. And uh, he, he talks about, um, let's see, he, he, uh, he uses the, the expression man overboard. And he said, uh, this is Marlowe. Now, he's still talking to his buddies that are on the veranda. He says, man overboard, said a deep voice behind me. Turning around, I saw a fellow I knew slightly, a West, Austra- uh, a West Australian. Chester was his name. And so, so essentially, uh, I'd like you to read all of this, but, but it goes on. Uh, from page 121 to 127, it has nothing to do, well, I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, it does have to do with Jim, but essentially this, uh, this West Australian, uh, and obviously he's, he's uh, formally into uh, sailing, and he and another uh, kind of a crooked captain, um, uh, his, name, his name is, uh, nickname is Holy Terror Robinson, and he did everything on the sea except being a pirate, I guess. And so, so is what it says. But they look at Jim. They know his career is trashed. And they want him to join this venture with them where they want to put, George, uh, to put um, Jim on this, uh, this really small island that's full of birds. And uh, they, they want him to be uh, the, the head man on the island. They're going to give him uh, you know, a couple of uh, six guns. And uh, uh, he's going to then work a whole crew of people that are going to collect bird droppings, <laughs> and it's going to be fertilizer for the, the, the you know the sugar plantations. And uh, they know his his uh, career is trashed, and uh, they they say he's just the right guy for the job. But of course, that is not what what Marlow thinks. So I'll let you read that on your own. That's that's. Uh, Pages one twenty one to one twenty seven, and uh, you know Marlowe uh, does really really defend Jim. All right, so so anyway, just remember that uh, uh, Warpole Reef is is the island they're going to gather the the guano, which is bird dropping, but it is I guess a really good fertilizer, and uh, I know from my experience with working some with some older people that were excellent gardeners is they really love chicken fertilizer because it was it made their vegetables grow so well. So there's something to all that. So there's, there's some uh, facts in with all this fiction. So I, I want to skip way ahead now to, uh, to chapter 15. This is page um, 128. And um, th- this chapter is about, essentially, you know, the rest of 14 is about, it's about the history of, um, you know, uh, the uh, Chester and then the, the Holy Terror Robinson 
and it's again it's it's another inset that that it, it's really well written but it really uh, it can be actually frustrating for for some people let's get on with Jim's story you know kind of thing so uh, uh, anyway the, the the beginning of chapter 15 it shows that there's another uh, seaman after um, Marlowe to get him involved in some type of a deal um, you know going on among the seamen and, and uh, they're trying to make extra money and so that must have been a, a real thing at that time in history where uh, you know these these uh, sea captains became crooks and uh, they were really on the take to make as much money as they could and so uh, but anyway he gets stopped and he's really concerned about Jim and he's hun- hunting for Jim he finally shakes the guy off and he said he said I made straight for the waterside this is the middle of page 128 I caught sight of Jim leaning over the parapet of the quay Three native boatmen quarreling over five annas were making an awful row at his elbow. He didn't hear me come up, but spun around as if the slight contact of my finger had released a catch. I was looking, he stammered. I don't remember I don't remember what I said, not, not much anyhow, but he made no difficulty in following me to the hotel. And so, so if you really look at that, readers, it, it really does appear that Jim was in such a dark mood that he was looking to jump. I mean, he was going to kill himself. He was, he was getting ready to commit suicide because if, if you remember the very beginning of the book, this was his whole life. This is what he wanted. He wanted to be, you know, a second mate. He wanted to be on ships, and that was over now. And uh, uh, so, so it is, I, I think it's interesting, Jim's career's on the rocks. He's standing on the rocks ready to jump. But uh, Marlowe just steps in to save him. Now it goes on down in the next paragraph. It says, uh, when he talks about Jim, um, this guy is just in uh, emotional turmoil. I mean, he's just, he's just suffering with this gloom. Uh, at the bottom of the page, he said, he followed me as a manageable, as a little child, with an obedient air, with no sort of manifestation, rather as though he'd been waiting for me there to go on to come along and carry him off. I need not have been surprised as I was at his tractability on all the round earth, which to some seems so big that others affect to consider as rather smaller than a mustard seed. He had no place where he could, what shall I say, where he could withdraw. That's it. Withdraw. Be alone with his loneliness. And so so here, uh, remember, Jim said, uh, I think last time we covered this, but he said earlier, uh, you know, in maybe chapter 13 or 14, when when he was kind of fighting with uh, Marlowe about this, remember he was trying to give him the rupees, you know, for, he, for him to run. And he said, this is not making me invisible. And so, so he knew that what happened on the Patna and the fact that he jumped is going to haunt him the rest of his life. All right. So, uh, uh, Remember now, Jim is really suffering. So at the top of page 129, uh, we find out that, that Marlowe does steer him back to his hotel. And uh, we had scenes of this from, from last time, uh, the last couple of programs anyway. Uh, there's a good quote at the top. It says, I steered him into my bedroom and sat down at once to write letters. This was the only place in the world 
and and then he puts in parentheses, unless perhaps the Walpole Reef. <laughs> he said, you know, there's nothing on the Walpole Reef but birds, you know. So, so uh, anyway, he says, but that was not so handy, where he could have it out with himself without being bothered by the rest of the universe. And so, so I, I think this is a really good, good uh, demonstration of Conrad. Is you know, it, it's like he expands it. That you know we are universe creatures, and here's Jim. Um, you know, he he is in the universe. You know, it's not he's just not in this. Uh, you know, um, you know part of the world, or he's not on Warpole Reef. But but here we are. We're universe beings. And he goes on. He said the thing as he had expressed it had not made him invisible, but I behaved exactly as though he were. No sooner in my chair I bent over my writing desk like a medieval scribe. And but for the movement of the hand, holding the pen remained anxiously quiet. And so, so he's trying to give this, this young man some space. And he goes on to say, uh, uh, you know, he, he's, um, he, he describes you know, Jim to us. He, he's, he goes on to say, uh, he talks a little bit about his hotel room. I'm not going to bother with that. You can read that yourself. So the glass door opened up, uh, opened up on an upstairs veranda, and he stood with his face to it, having a hard time with all possible privacy. Dusk fell. I lit a candle, and with a great economy of movement and as much prudence as though it were an, an illegal proceeding, there is no dull, doubt he had a very hard time of it, and so had I, even to the point I must own of wishing him to the devil or on Whirlpool Reef at least. <laughs> and so so the, the, I think the thing that... that uh, Conrad is really trying to do there for us. He's trying to say this guy's gloom was so bad and it was so heavy that it's waiting. It was even waiting Marlowe down, and he was saying, "Look, you know, uh, you know, his life is as far as he's concerned is over. But I'd like to get rid of him because he's really affecting my life, you know." So, uh, <clears throat> and anyway. Uh, then he goes on, he talks about Chester again. It, said, it occurred to me once or twice that, after all, Chester was perhaps the man to deal effectively with such a disaster. <laughs> so so it's, it's so bad he's even going to turn him over to Chester. And all Chester wanted to do is to take advantage of his weakness and have him go to this island and uh, collect bird droppings. You know, so so uh, what a down, what a downer for Jim. So he goes on to say, I wrote and I wrote, I, I liquidated all the arrears of my correspondence and then went on writing to people who had no reason whatsoever to expect, a, expect from me a gossipy letter about nothing at all. At times, I stole a sideways glance. But, uh, but look at this now. It says, this is another great quote at the bottom of page 129. He was rooted to the spot. But convulsive shudders ran down his back. His shoulders would ha- would heave suddenly. He was fighting. He was fighting. This is the top of page 130. Mostly for his breath, as it seemed. The massive shadows cast all one way from the slight frame of the candle. Seemed possessed of gloomy consciousness. The immobility of the furniture had to my furtive eyes an air of attention. I was becoming fanciful in the midst of my industrious scribbling, and though when the scratching of my pen stopped for a moment, there was complete silence and stillness in the room, I suffered from that profound disturbance and confusion of thought, which is caused by a violent and menacing uproar, uproar of a heavy gale at sea, for instance. 
And so, so you know, look at the look what Jim is creating, and uh, uh, you know the the atmosphere he was creating, and it was really driving Marlowe crazy. Now, at, at the very bottom of the page, I, I don't want to to forget this for today, and uh, this might be all we we're getting all we're going to be getting to get done. But um, it it, uh, it really is great writing, and this is what I think. This is where um, you know Conrad does does such a great job. So this is the very bottom of the page. It says through the open door. So so Jim actually gets up and, and uh, goes outside. It says uh, through the open door, the outer edge of the light from my candle fell on his back faintly. Beyond all was black. He stood on the brink of a vast obscurity like a lonely figure by the shore of a somber and hopeless ocean. And so, so you know, here's, here's this concept of blackness again and darkness. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more as we go along. But Jim is entering into blackness, and it's, and it's mostly because of the gossip or the, the error or the lies that are being told about him. And so, you know, he, he lost in court, and the other three guys got away, and, uh, you know, but he, he has to shoulder their whole burden. He, so, so just remember that. I mean, this, he's, uh, Conrad talked about, you know, he's, a, he's a, what, an individual in the universe, which we all are. There's a big universe out there. And, uh, you know, what's the purpose of it? Well, there's a great purpose to it, and we'll talk about that before we end this book as well. But uh, he said he was like a lonely figure by the shore of a somber and hopeless ocean, and so uh, Melville also uses the op- the ocean to uh, to describe some of these um, things. But he goes on to say, then his back was no longer shaken by gasps; he stood straight as an arrow, faintly visible and still. And the meaning of his stillness sank to the bottom of my soul like lead into the water, and made it so heavy for a second I wished heartily that the only course left open for me were to pay for his funeral. And so so you can see that, that Conrad is uh, was deeply affected by what was happening with Jim. Well, that is all we have for today's program. And so uh, uh, next time, Deborah will be back, and we'll continue to discuss Jim's life after the inquiry decision. You can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So get this book and and, uh, start reading it. You can still catch up. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.